Open House. Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. Tonight, we're talking addictions with our human condition expert clinical psychologist, Lynn Worsley. Last week, we began this series on addictions with a bit of an overview. Tonight, the first of a series of specific chats looking at specific addictions, and we begin with alcohol. Lynn, welcome back with some very interesting um, terminology here between addict and alcoholic. Yes, yes, Lee, you'd be surprised how many people I see who think they might be addicted to alcohol, but they'll refuse to use the term alcoholic. What, too much baggage going Social through Social stigma or yes. maybe it's okay to say I have an addiction to alcohol or an allergy to alcohol, but to actually be labelled as an alcoholic is another step, I think. It's very interesting. Yeah, but either way, the effects are well documented for centuries and centuries, and yet we still get surprised when we realise that all of us are prone to become alcoholics if we use the dangerous drug right or unwisely. I, it's interesting that you use the term drug and and a dangerous drug at that. Yes, yeah. Now, look, alcohol is the most dangerous drug that we use, and that isn't just because it's readily available and it's socially acceptable. It's also because it's got a widespread effect on the whole body. Mm. Um, it, it, it also reacts with most other drugs that you use um, and it affects the brain and how it functions. It, it affects how, our, how we digest our food. It affects metabolism, self-esteem, libido, social skills, memory and personality. So you hardly wonder why it's legal. <laughs> legal. It's the jackpot. <laughs> yes. So now... Because alcohol has these effects, it's precisely why people drink. Um, yes. It also is why we should be really, really careful about how we drink. Yes. So what are the, some of the reasons people drink? It might seem an obvious question, but there are specific reasons. Why yes. Now, look, I had a look at the um, reachout.com website. Great website. And, uh, you know, they've done lots of research, uh, collected research and, and data and so on. And what they're saying is that people say they want to experiment, um, they want to socialise, they want to have fun or celebrate, they want to relieve their boredom, um, they want to relax, or they might want to escape. Now, when I read that, I, I asked someone recently why they why they drank so much on the weekend. They were a bit of a binge drinker, mm. um, like they were literally getting smashed every Saturday night. So these are the questions that she gave me. One, I want to have a great time. Two, I don't want to care about anything. Three, if someone tells me something I don't particularly want to know, then it just wants I just want it to go over my head. Four, I just want to escape everything. And five, I become different when I drink. I talk a lot more. I can't talk to anyone when I'm sober. I'm a lot more fun. I'm definitely more happy and I can do anything I feel like doing. Wow. Yeah. Now, without going too far and identifying who this might be or giving too much away, how would you describe that person? Is that person, you know, an alcoholic or is that person just, my guess is, just like the rest of us. I think she's just like the rest of us. And yeah. I think, although I think this, this she's incredibly intelligent, incredibly um, uh, insightful, and sometimes I think her, um, her thoughts might get away with her. And I think that's probably why she drinks a lot too, to get away from those thoughts. Yeah. So is it okay to be drinking just on the weekends or does this refer to drinking regularly each night? Well, there isn't much difference in terms of the effect on the body, um, whether you binge drink on the weekends or whether you have a drink each night. Both ways of drinking can lead to addictions. 
Um, the pathway to addiction is to drink to the point where the blood gets used to the saturation of alcohol. A bit like being pickled. Um, not just the brain, but the whole body getting pickled. And what happens is that the bloodstream and the brain begin to tolerate the amount of alcohol and that starts to bring the, the body starts to come back to equilibrium. Um, that means that it, it adjusts by increasing the insulin needed to digest the, the sugar in the alcohol or lowering the metabolism in the body so it doesn't get absorbed so quickly. Mm. Um, it stores it, it in the liver so it can be used later. Um, and or, or the alcohol hangs onto the fat cells so it can be masked and not absorbed too much at once and that means that alcohol is stored in the body for a long period of time so the more you drink the more is stored and the more you increase your blood alcohol without blood alcohol without um, noticing over time yes. um, and that's called tolerance uh, and it's the first step towards addiction so when you say it's stored in the body this is after you've lost the kind of heady effects of alcohol I take it yes yeah. yes so it, it, it the the body can't really take that much alcohol because it just gets pickled. So it'll store it for later on. But over time, you keep storing more and more. Um, so alcohol tolerance is really another name for um, alcohol poisoning. Wow. It can start at any age and it occurs in all classes of people and people of all education levels. Um, actually, there's a very high proportion of doctors and lawyers who are alcoholics. Why would you explain? How would you explain that? Well, if you just have to go to a lawyer's office and get offered a drink and you'll see why. Yeah. It's part of the culture. Yes, is it culture or pressure? Both. Yes, both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, both. Alcoholism doesn't discriminate. Um, right. Now, some of the ugly signs of alcohol poisoning are blood capillaries bursting in the face, like, you know, the rosy complexion. Seen that. Swollen liver and a gut. Um, alcohol stored in the liver cells and the fat cells around the middle of the tummy. Muscle wasting of the legs and arms. A yellow skin and eyes, a shaking when you need to get more alcohol to top up, and an unusual odour in the skin and the breath. Um, and the next sign of alcohol addiction is, or alcoholism, is withdrawal. Yes. Now, when someone has withdrawal, it's both, both physical and emotional, and they begin to shake when they need another drink, and they think about alcohol during the day. Um, they start to think of drinking before lunch or think they might need one at any time during the day they lose track of time or conversations and there's some some very awful memory impairment which is associated with vitamin b deficiencies so when you're talking about withdrawal you're not talking about okay i'm going to give the grog up for another for a month no 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 i'm talking this about actually having tremors or and they used we used to call them the dts the yeah. death tremors mm. and they're pretty horrible and when i was a nurse i had um Many occasions where someone was brought into the wards to go through alcohol withdrawal and the whole body would literally be in, in shock. Now, one of the hardest things for alcohol addictions is that the cells in the body become so accustomed to the drug that even when the alcohol, um, the addict is dry, the cells still remain with the capacity to consume that level of alcohol, which is why once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. That is the rule, is it? So well, there's no escape from this. That's that's the AA um, mantra. Yes. Um, it's also why we really need to be very mindful of caring for our family and friends by not forcing people to drink um, or making sure that we make it just as easy not to drink when we have parties or functions. Yes. Um, it's also why we need to be really mindful of showing children and adolescents very healthy drinking patterns. Mm. I'd also like to say that it's time we started thinking about talking openly about how we drink. 
and and make it more normal to discuss how we drink. So it's so it's okay then to go to a pub and say, look, you know, it's okay. I'm not drinking. I'm on a detox, or um, or I'm watching my alcohol intake at the moment. So a lime and soda that'd be fine. But you that's know. against the culture. It's that's against the saying. culture. Although I think it's starting to change. Okay. I think people are starting to talk about, you know, I'm having a, a dry July, or you know, I'm I'm, I'm going to give it up for a while. Yeah. I just think the more that we can discuss openly about having a bit of a health kit and and maybe just just talk about how we can have our limits, what our limits are, rather than boasting about how much we can drink. Yes. So how does the alcoholic get help then? Hmm? Well, it's been said that the alcohol alcoholic has to hit rock bottom before they get help, um, and that's true. However, I hope that the the recent government campaigns have begun to tackle this tackle this by making people more aware of normal balance drinking and maybe getting to help before they hit rock bottom. But if you notice your drinking is getting out of control, you can't, or like you can't go to a party without being smashed, or you feel like you can't function without a drink to start the evening, or you even start to to um, drink well and truly before dinner and um, well afterwards. But, or you don't even have a day where you don't drink. Just go and get some help. Uh, find a trusted friend or see your GP and get a referral to see a psychologist or a drug and alcohol counsellor. A lot of shame associated with it though. Yes, but you know, if you think about it, I think there is an enormous amount of strength, enormous amount of strength with actually admitting you've got an issue and going and seeking help. Yes. I have so much respect for someone who has that. Yeah. Now, look, there's some websites you can go to. Okay. Um, reachout.com, excellent website. Um, alcohol.gov.au, a really good one put out by the, um, by the government. Um, Alcoholics Anonymous has a great website. And you can get into um, AA meetings. They're held everywhere. And there's one every night of the week, probably in your suburb if you go and Google it. Um, and now AA, they're not groups that are professionals, but they're people who are also going through the process of giving up alcohol. Yeah. And m- each of the groups are self-governed and they're guided, guided by the 12-step process. And there's a spiritual component of the whole process. And members are encouraged just to keep an open mind. They hold the premise that all available medical testimony indicates that alcoholism is a progressive illness that it cannot be cured in an ordinary sense of the term um, and that it can be arrested through total abstinence from alcohol in any form. So that's why some people balk at going to AA because they think they might be able to cope as an alcoholic without giving it up giving altogether. It up. Yeah, that's the big And, uh, you know, I think it, it's, it's a lot to be said to, um, to be able to give it up. Yeah. What we're going to try and do, Lynn, with numbers of these chats in this series on addictions is actually speak to people for whom... Each one, uh, in fact, this has been very real and personal. Like Justin Lipiat, at first he used to hang around with his mates who smoked dope and drink alcohol. And from there it was all quite downhill. At 15 he started drinking heavily. His problem actually started at home. Let's have a bit of a listen to Justin Lipiat. My father was a very heavy drinker and so from a very early age, drinking alcohol was just a normal part of life. You got expelled from your boarding school in South Africa. Yes, I did. Did that Uh, shake you up much? Yes, it did. But I think I was more afraid of my father than the consequences of um, smoking and drinking. My father was paying a lot of money for me to go to a private boarding school and for me to get expelled. um, It wasn't so much the alcohol or the smoking, but it was more the expulsion that really got him rattled. But you 
describe yourself as crazy, rebellious and aggressive and daring in your new school. Yes. So the, the peer pressure for me was about how I transformed myself from being somebody that um, wasn't popular, somebody that wasn't accepted into somebody who was accepted, uh, somebody who was bowing, I suppose, to a lot of peer pressure and who was conforming to what were societal norms. Did many people notice how heavily you were drinking? Yes. On several occasions, my teachers would remark on the fact that I smelt of alcohol when I went to school. Um, and, of course, um, there were often occasions that I was severely hungover on a Monday morning after a weekend of heavy drinking. How much were you drinking, say, in your teens? Um, I don't say this proudly, um, but on one occasion I drank a slab of beer, a bottle of brandy and a bottle of port. And you were still conscious? Yes. And at what age were you then? 16. And the consequences, Justin? The consequences, I think, for me were that I was living a lie because I was not who I really was. I, was, I had a, a facade that I was showing to everybody, and uh, the drinking and the alcohol were just a mechanism for me to be different. The consequences in another aspect were that the more I drank and the more I got out of hand, the less self-esteem I had the following day. So the next day I was always racked with guilt and shame and remorse for what I'd done the night before, if I could remember, that is. Mm -hmm. um, but... Yeah, so there was there was consequences in on every level and in every sphere of my life. You tried Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, I went through Alcoholics Anonymous twice. They were great. Really, have to, I really take my hat off to them. They are a phenomenal, phenomenal group. Um, but for me, there was just something missing. You know, I just I just couldn't get my head around um, wanting to give up. For me, and and for the the people that I've spoken to and the people that I I, I relate to from. Uh, you know, from a rehabilitation point of view, you know, giving up alcohol and addiction is about wanting to give up, not needing to, because every alcoholic, every drug addict, everybody that is addicted to something knows that they need to give up. But no, nobody really wants to give up until they get to a certain point in their life. And once they decide that they want to give up, that's when change can take place. But you wanted to give up, I take it, in going to Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, I did. I suppose the, the difference for me then was that uh, I was in a relationship with um, someone and she really encouraged me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous because my drinking was so so out of hand, uh, bearing in mind I'd already drank my first marriage away uh, and I thought it was a pretty good idea for me to go and to try and get myself right. But in in reality, I didn't really want to ever stop drinking. I just wanted to cut it down. I wanted to be able to manage it, but I didn't want to stop drinking. Can you describe the hold that it had over you? I can. I stayed at home for a year after I gave up drinking, so I didn't go out for a whole year. I stayed at home. I watched TV. I was so afraid to go out anywhere to go for a pizza, for example, at a pizza restaurant because I would have this overwhelming urge to drink. Very much like Australian social culture around the barbecue is having a tinny, having a beer, having a glass of wine. 
the very, very same type of culture exists in South Africa where, you know, it's always about just have one or two beers, have the barbecue, uh, a great sort of social life. When we go out for dinner, we're having drinks, that kind of thing. And for me, it was just a, a minefield. I could not do it myself. I just could not do it myself. And I was very, very dependent on God to give me the strength to go through. So tell us how you emerged, I suppose, from the fog of the grog. <laughs> it's a fantastic uh, <laughs> statement. But um, I think what what really triggered it for me was my partner at the time, Barbara, who's now my beloved wife. And she had kicked me out three times uh, for just, I just used to disappear on weekends, not come home from work. Uh, I just, I, I was a real I wasn't a really nice person. And I realized this one day that after the third time she'd kicked me out that that I needed to make a choice. And as I stood in the bedroom looking down at her as she was crying uh, and said, you know, saying to me, Justin, I don't respect you. I don't like you. I don't want you in my life. Um, I just want you gone. I want you out of here. I realized right then that I stood at not a, not a crossroads, but I actually just crashed into a T-junction. And I knew that at that moment I needed to make a life choice. It was either jail or death or life and a chance at happiness. And at that stage it wasn't so much even Jesus. It was I knew that I had to make a choice. And the life choice meant that I'd I'd need Jesus to take me through it. But at that time I just remember this overwhelming sense of this is it. It, the choice that I make now determines my future. And if I choose life, then I need to rely on Barbara and Jesus to get me through because I will not be able to do it myself. Had you already been nibbling around the Christian faith or had that been on your horizon? My father was Jewish. My mother was Catholic. I got confirmed in the Anglican Church. So I had some some sort of um, exposure to Christianity. And my wife, Barbara, had just started going to church and I'd said to her, look, you know, you're going to have to choose either that's the church or me. And praise God, I lost. So you stayed home for a year, fearing that you'd be captured again by alcohol. Yes. What then? Well, I think the, the reality of the, of the situation was that I was so afraid of going into an environment where I would not be strong enough to say no. Bear in mind, my friends, my social um, environment, my work environment were all pro-drinking. So for, for me to go out with them, it was never good enough for me to sit there and drink an orange juice or a Coca-Cola. For them, it was always about have one or two beers, but don't, don't go overboard. Once I'd had that one, once I'd had that two beers, it was gone. I would, I would drink the whole night through um, with horrible consequences, the fighting, being obnoxious, all the drama that went with it. Uh, it was just not worth it. And um, I was so afraid of getting stuck in that again that I, I stayed at home. I just threw myself into every church activity I could because I, uh, that was the only way I could see I was going to be able to get through this. I had to dedicate absolutely every aspect of my life to Jesus, let him take control because that was the only way I thought I was going to get through. And that practically happened. You're almost empowered to do that. God took my weaknesses and made them my strength. And there is a massive stigma in, 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 in the business and the corporate community about being an alcoholic. And I was petrified of, and I think a lot of 
uh, closet alcoholics are petrified of going to Alcoholics Anonymous or getting help or recognizing that they are alcoholics because they are so afraid of the stigma that is attached to alcoholism in the workplace. Um, when I started working at a bank, I made it abundantly clear at my first interview that I was an alcoholic, that I would not be attending functions the normal social functions. I was happy to put in my 10 hours a day, work very, very hard, be productive, but I wasn't going to subject myself to that. This is after you'd given up the grant? Yes, that's right. And by the grace of God, I got a job at a bank that had actually repossessed my car and blacklisted me six months previously. So how would you describe life today? Well, today I could, I could quite comfortably go and sit in, an, in a pub um, and watch the footy um, and drink a Coke. But I wouldn't do that on an ongoing basis. It's, for me, evangelism in the marketplace has been a phenomenal thing and, and a real privilege. But I wouldn't go and sit in a pub every night and try and lead people who are drinking to the Lord. I just believe that that's a lack of wisdom. But uh, once you're on that slippery slope, there's no turning back. I know it sounds a bit strange, but when I stopped drinking, I realized that I could actually smell flowers. I realized that I could remember how I was getting to work in the morning, things that I'd taken for granted. There were many, many mornings that I was at, at about 11 o'clock, I would, I would be puzzling as to how I actually got to work that day. It just brought so much freedom for me because life was so very, very different. I didn't have to be socially or mentally or psychologically or physically bound to something that was destroying my life and had completely destroyed my life prior to um, finding the Lord. Our great thanks to Justin Lippiot for sharing his personal journey. Lynn, your reflections on that as you hear it? Um, I'm overwhelmed. I think he's amazing. And, so gutsy. Uh, yes, but you know, here he's, here his story that he can't. He knows he can't drink again. He mm. knows um, very well that he's... He's an alcoholic for life and yes. that uh, he's not to put himself into the situations where he has to be exposed again to that. The response of his wife, what about that? Oh, look, I think she was brilliant as well because she also could see that uh, in some ways, and I'll talk about this next week, in how um, it, with addictions you can be an enabler um, by supporting them in, in to keep the alcohol or the, the, uh, the drugs going and... Um, and I think what she did was basically just pulled out and said, I'm not going to enable you to do this anymore. Yeah. I'm not going to stand by and let this happen and watch you destroy yourself, so I'm just bailing. I'm getting out of this. And that sounds like it's not helpful. It doesn't sound like it's supportive, but it actually is very supportive Yeah. because it doesn't enable the problem to continue. Well, I look forward to our check next week because we're going from alcohol to drugs, which is interesting. It's a different kettle of fish. Yes, yeah. yes. Lynn Worsley, as always, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.